Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We're going to start things a little differently this morning, and that's because we need to do uh, a little bit of uh, sharing, but we also want to do a little bit of celebrating in the middle of that. And it's two different items. The first of those is that this morning uh, and today is Jim Stites' last day with us here on staff at Liberty Christian Fellowship. He's been our youth pastor for um, around five years and to see him go, but we're also celebrating because of the work that the Lord has done in and through Jim and his ministry here at LCF, but also we're celebrating what the Lord is going to do through Jim in the future as he shifts into um, pursuing some schooling and then moving into a career of counseling. Um, If you know Jim at all, if you've had the chance to spend any time around him, you know just how perfectly suited he is um, to, to have counseling be what he does in the next season of life and of ministry. And so um, the Lord has been incredibly faithful to us over the last five years as Jim has been a part of our student ministry, leading that, investing in our students and in our families and ultimately in our congregation. And so um, uh, certainly a sad day as we say goodbye to him being on our staff, but also lots to celebrate from his time being here with us. And so Jim is back here in the back. Um, if, if we could, um, just as a show of appreciation, if we could just give Jim a round of applause. Um, he's, he's been a wonderful piece of our staff. Um, for the last season of ministry, um, and we look forward to what the Lord will do in and through him in this next season for him and Suze and Joshua in their lives, but also what the Lord will do in and through our student ministry with Erica and Adam leading that for us. Uh, the other piece of news that we have to share um, is uh, from Joe Stewart, and so rather than me sharing that, I'm just going to let Joe come up and take a few minutes to explain in his own words. Good morning. I said first service, I'm, I'm never nervous being up here. I enjoy it very much, but uh, today I am nervous. Um, August 2nd, today, 2020, I am both saddened and excited to announce that just shy of four years of being the missions pastor here at LCF, I will be stepping down from that role at the end of this year. My family and I have been commissioned by Avant Ministries to move to the Middle East and begin the work of church planting. We've been patiently pursuing this calling for at least the last five years, and God has made it clearly evident that that time for us to move and to go to do this work is very soon. I will stay on staff here at LCF till the end of this calendar year before stepping down. After that, we will be following the Lord's leading in raising the rest of the partnerships and support that we need to be fully funded to move, and I will be working full-time on a project that I have been involved in uh, that is building a coalition of churches and practitioners and long-term workers for engaging the Middle East, a project that uh, I've been involved in heavily over the course of the last year uh, with other organizations. Next summer, our family will move to the Middle East for an extended period of time. We will move back in time to attend an Avant conference and for our oldest son, Gunner, to finish his last semester at Liberty High. 
and then we will fully move at the end of 2021, just after Christmas. Outside of just the bare facts that I've just shared, as I sat at my computer on Thursday and thought about what I should write, what I should say, I was truly at a loss for words. And this is where it gets hard. The gratitude that I have felt in my heart to have served this church in such a role has been one of my life's greatest joys. As I sit in amazement at such leadership that is here, uh, especially found in Tim and how much he has taught me, I don't know what to say. For a staff that is truly special, that labors together with such love, for a congregation that has been so faithful, even amidst such times as these that we are currently living in. And if you are unaware, I want to tell you or just remind you that this is a very special house of the Lord. If you don't know the staff members or the pastoral staff here, you should endeavor to change that. They are truly special people that truly, truly care about your relationship with the Lord Jesus. I feel unworthy to have been able to be in the position that I have been able to serve. There are many things I wish I could have done better and many things that I am proud to have witnessed through what God has allowed me to do here. And I feel as though Paul, when he addresses Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, and he says this, I thank him, the Lord, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is my prayer that me, who I consider the worst of sinners, would have made any impact on lives within this great congregation for the glory and honor of our great King and our God. It has been my honor, my family's honor, to serve this church, to see our sons grow up knowing you all, to see so many lives changed through the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be a part of a close-knit family. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity and for loving me through all of its ups and downs, and we look forward to continuing to see God work through this church from the other side of the world. Thank you. Jim, you want to you wanna come join us? Um, I would love to just spend some time as a congregation, both here and uh, if you're watching with us online, praying for the Stewart family and the Stites family. Um, I said this at our 8 o'clock service, and 
That's the, the, the personalities of these two individuals will certainly leave large holes on our staff. They've been uh, wonderful partners in ministry here. They've served our congregation incredibly well. God has used their gifts and their talents and their passions and personalities to impact the life of this congregation. And that will leave holes on our staff. And it feels like a loss to us um, starting tomorrow uh, when we show up to the office and Jim's not here. And then at the end of the year when Joe steps away. But at the same time, we believe and trust that God will continue to be faithful to our congregation and who he brings to fill these roles with Adam Kuntz joining us in the student ministry role and whoever it is that joins us to continue to lead our missions efforts. And so we both are saddened, but we also celebrate uh, what the Lord is doing and what he will do in future seasons of ministry here and also outside of here. One of the things that we talk about a lot here is that we want to build up and equip people so that they can be sent out to carry the message of the gospel and what incredible pictures of being able to do that um, from the staff level as Joe and his family head overseas and as Jim and his family move into a new season of life and ministry. So if you would join me in praying for them, uh, then uh, we'll send Jim off today and we'll enjoy, we'll enjoy a few more months of Joe. So God, thank you for these two faithful um, men God, we thank you for the way that you've worked in and through them in the life of this congregation. God, I praise you for Jim and the way you've used uh, his soft heart and uh, gentle spirit. God, the way you've used his gifts of pastoring and of mercy to meet students and families in the middle of what have been some very difficult seasons for certain families in our congregation. Lord, and you've used Jim to walk alongside them, to care for them and love them and point them to the gospel and share with them the way it is that the hope of Jesus intersects in those difficult moments of their lives, God. And there's no one who would have been more perfectly suited for that over this last season of ministry than Jim. And we thank you for bringing him here Uh, for his humility and uh, spirit that just longed to be obedient and to serve you. God, we pray for him and Suze and Joshua as they look at the next season of life and take a little gap here to catch their breath before Jim jumps into coursework. Um, And we pray that you would uh, just use this next short season of life to re-energize and prepare Jim for what ministry is going to look like in the future. And we pray for the clients that he'll work with, the people that he'll have a chance to interact with and to care for God. And we, we look forward expectantly to the work you'll do in and through him in the counseling realm. God, we thank you for Joe, uh, for his courage and his boldness, Lord, for his passion and his uh, leadership within our missions ministry over the last few years. Um, God, when I think about the way it is that this church longs to take the gospel to the nations and longs to take the gospel to those who are um, unsaved here in our midst, in our community, God, I can't help but think of the way that Joe has um, stewarded and fostered that passion within our congregation, the structure he's put to our missions program so that we can effectively share the gospel among the unreached around the world, but also among those here in our own community who need the hope of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. Um, God, we pray for Joe and Rochelle, um, for Gunner and Canton and Ridge as um, they enter into a season of preparing to move to the Middle East. 
God, we look forward to what it is that you'll do through them, the churches that you'll plant, the believers that you'll raise up, um, the people that you'll equip to share the gospel in their own country, in their own language, to their own people, Lord. And we don't know what all the details of that look like, but uh, we're excited for you to move in that way. God, would you prepare Joe and Rochelle to lead that effort, um, to make all the decisions necessary between now and then to move their family over to the Middle East? God, we love these two men. We're thankful for them. We love their families and the way that they've been such wonderful parts of this congregation. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us in the ways that you've used these two to minister to this congregation. And thank you for the way that you will be faithful in the days ahead, both in their lives and in the life of this church. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Esther chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Esther 6 is 14 verses long, and we're going to work with the whole thing, but we're going to do it in two pieces, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look at verses 6 through 14. And if you remember where we left off in Esther chapter 5, Haman's got a plan to kill Mordecai. He is uh, building a large gallows on his front yard, 75 feet tall, to hang Mordecai on it, and he's excited to go and ask the king Uh, at least present that plan to the king. And Esther chapter 6 picks up with that story, and it runs forward. Where I actually want us to start, though, is with a poem. This is a poem by J.R.R. Tolkien. It was written in 1923, at least that's when it was published. If you're familiar with The Hobbit, whether the book or the movies, then you'll be familiar with a character named uh, uh, Dragon named Smog. He sits on a massive pile of gold that he guards um, and protects. This poem, which is entitled The Horde, H-O-A-R-D, is the backstory to that dragon, Smog. I'm going to read this this whole thing. It'll take a couple of minutes. I want to encourage you to listen very closely because it was written in 1923. It's poetry, so some of the verbiage is kind of switched around. This is a poem that talks about hoarding, particularly what will happen when you hoard your idol. Here's what it says. When the moon was new and the sun young, of silver and gold the gods sung. In the green grass they silver spilled, in the white waters they gold filled. Ere the pit was dug or hell yawned, ere dwarf was bred and dragon spawned, there were elves of old in strong spells, under green hills in hollow, dwe- or in hollow dells. They sang as they wrought many fair things in the bright crowns of the elf kings. But their doom fell and their song waned by iron hewn and by steel chained. Greed that sang not nor with mouth smiled in dark holes their wealth piled. Graven silver and carven gold over elven home the shadow rolled. There was an old dwarf in a dark cave. Of silver and gold his fingers clave. With hammer and tongs and anvil stone he worked his hands to the hard bone. And coins he made and strings of rings and thought to buy the power of kings. But his eyes grew dim and his ears dull and the skin yellow on his old skull. Through his bony caw or claw with a pale sheen the stony jewels slipped unseen. No feet he heard though the earth quaked when the young dragon his thirst slaked. 
and the stream smoked at his dark door. The flames hissed on the dank floor, and he died alone in the red fire. His bones were ashes in the hot mire. There was an old dragon under gray stone. His red eyes blinked as he lay alone. His joy was dead and his youth spent. He was knobbed and wrinkled and his legs bent. In the long years to his gold chained, in his heart's furnace the fire waned. To his belly's slime, gems stuck thick. Silver and gold he would snuff and lick. He knew the place of the least ring beneath the shadow of his black wing. Of thieves he thought on his hard bed and he dreamed that on their flesh he fed. Their bones crushed and their blood drank. His ears drooped and his breath sank. Male rings rang, he heard them nod in his deep grot. A young warrior with a bright sword called him forth to defend his horde. His teeth were knives and his horn, or, and of horn his hide, but iron tore him and his flame died. There was an old king on a high throne. His white beard lay on his knees of bone. His mouth savored neither meat nor drink, nor his ears song. He could only think of his huge chest with carven lid where pale gems and gold lay hid. In secret treasury in the dark ground, its strong doors were iron bound. The swords of his thanes were dull with rust, his glory fallen, his rule unjust. His halls hollow and his bowers cold, but the king, he was of elvish gold. He heard not the horns in the mountain pass, he smelt not the blood on the trodden grass, but his halls were burned, his kingdom lost, in a cold pit his bones were tossed. There was an old horde in a dark, ro- in a dark rock. Forgotten behind doors, none can unlock. That grim gate no man can pass. On the mound grows the green grass. There sheep feed and the larks soar, and the wind blows from the seashore. The old horde the night shall keep, while earth waits and the elves sleep. Elves, dwarf, a dragon, a king, all in pursuit of this treasure of gold. And yet all of them die, and the treasure remains. That's what happens when we feed our idols. We talked about this last week. You see, the truth is that our idols are hoarders. They never have enough. They're always unwilling to let go. Our idol convinces us that not to have more or to let go of something that we already have would be to threaten or devastate the core of who we are our security, our peace, our fulfillment, our purpose. And we said last week, you can do one of two things with your idol. You can either feed it and it will destroy you or you can starve it and it will be destroyed. In Tolkien's poem, the horde, the elves, the dwarf, the dragon, the king, they all feed their idol. And by the end of it, All of them are gone and the treasure remains. So it is with our idols. Feed them and their never-ending cravings for more and we end up destroyed, having never fully received that which our idol promised. And yet the idol will remain useless. Our idols want to reign as the king in our lives, enthroned upon the most important space in our hearts and worshiped and adored with all that we are. But the truth is that our idols are not good and gracious giving kings. They are tyrants. And they will take and take and take until there's nothing left for them to take anymore. Our idols are hoarders. Two parts this morning. Esther 6 verses 1 through 5. We're going to prove something that we've been saying since the start of this series. 
and then Esther chapter 6, verses 6 through 14, we're going to see kind of part two of Haman's idolatry and the way it hoards until it destroys him. Before we jump in and read the first five verses of Esther 6, jot something down if you're a note taker. It's this, that your most underused tool in reading and understanding scripture is the power of observation. Just being able to look and observe a text before you impose meaning on the text. What does it actually say? Most of us come to scripture and we don't often read with the goal of understanding. We read for completion. We just want to check it off the list for that day. We read for encouragement or comfort, support or empowerment. We read for factual knowledge or devotional uplift. None of those are wrong. None of those in themselves are bad. But if you read for understanding, you get all of those along with it. In order to understand, we have to be willing to observe, to observe a passage, a verse, a paragraph, a whole book like the book of Esther, and then to let the Holy Spirit enlighten as to what that observation means. We must be willing to look and look and look and look at a passage until we've seen to the very bottom of it and then allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate every last piece of it. And once we understand, then we can be rightly encouraged, supported, challenged, comforted, empowered, informed, uplifted, etc. Esther 6 is a look and look and look passage. Because when we see it correctly, it unlocks the rest of the book for us. And so we're going to do a lot of observing this morning as we walk through this. If you've got a Bible open, I'm going to read the first five verses of Esther chapter 6. It says this, That night sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording the daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. We've been saying from the beginning of the our looking at the book of Esther, that God is the main character, that Esther and Mordecai and Ahasuerus and Haman are prominent features in the book of Esther, but God, start to end, is the main character. He's the primary acting agent in the entire book. This morning, I'd like to prove that to you, and I want to do it through one phrase, because the whole book of Esther hinges on just a few words. And when we think about Esther, some phrases pop to mind as to what those might be. But the book of Esther does not hinge on Esther 4.14, where Mordecai says, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The book of Esther does not hinge on Esther's response in chapter 4, verse 16. I will go to the king, even if it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The book of Esther does not hinge on 
Esther chapter eight, verse five, where Esther goes into the king and says, if it pleases the king and I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. The book of Esther hinges on the first six words of Esther chapter six. That night, sleep escaped the king. At Esther's most pivotal moment, who is the primary agent at work? It's God. Let me show you how I know that. We're going to have to understand a couple of like literary ideas. Most of us know what the climax of a story is. In any piece of narrative literature, the climax is the, pe- the part at which usually two primary characters come into kind of striking uh, conflict with one another, and the resolution of that conflict at the moment of the narrative's like peak tension reveals something about both characters that sets everything in order and then allows for the resolution of the rest of the story. That is the climax. Typically, that climax lines up with the moment where the story also shifts, where everything in the narrative goes from moving one direction to now moving a different direction. Those two things don't always have to align. That sort of shifting where something surprising happens that alters the course of the story is a literary term known as a peripety, P-E-R-I-P-E-T-Y. Those two things don't have to happen at the same time. And maybe the easiest way to display a time where those two things aren't aligned is to just talk through really briefly the great American cinematic classic, Remember the Titans. The climax of Remember the Titans. Team is playing against uh, Marshall High School, I think, in like the Northern Virginia Regional Championship game. The odds are stacked against the Titans because the refs are throwing the game. I mean, they're flagging like everything, and Coach Boone, Denzel Washington, is losing his mind on the sideline. And up in the stands, Coach Yost who's like the defensive coordinator of the team, used to be the head coach, now is the defensive coordinator. He's got these folks from the Virginia High School Football Hall of Fame that are watching who have rigged this game against the Titans. And as long as Yost just goes along with it, he'll get his wish, his dream of his career, which is to be in that Hall of Fame. More of this is going on, more flags, more flags, more flags, cut to the stand, Yost's daughter is like stomping, you know, this is, that's a terrible call, this is awful, Yost looks up at her, and you arrive at the moment where, where the tension peaks, and Coach Yost, who's done nothing up to this point to stand up for the black players on his team, or to really even support Coach Boone, a black head coach, walks out to the referee And he says in this kind of quiet, intense voice, I know what's going on here, and if you don't stop, I'll go to the papers, and I'll take you down, and I'll go down with you. And the ref kind of plays it off like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Coach Yost walks back to the sideline, and he says, defense on me. And they all come in, and he bends down, and he says, I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. You make sure they forever remember the night they played the Titans. That is the climax of that movie. Everything after that is just resolving the fact that in that moment, Coach Boone and Coach Yost came in striking parallel to one another. 
Boone is enraged that the refs are throwing the game against his team. Yost letting it happen passively, and then something happens, and Yost goes out and takes a stand. That's the climax. The movie actually pivoted somewhere different, though, and it was like an hour earlier. The movie actually pivoted. Uh, the players are at camp near Gettysburg. They're not getting along with one another, black players, white players. It's just everything is full of tension. And so they take this overnight run to the battlefield of Gettysburg, right? They're like running through the woods and across creeks, and it's like linemen. You're like, how far is this run? This is taking forever. They arrive there. Coach Boone gives like a speech. And the next day, when they're at their three-a-day practices, because that's what they're doing until they start to get along, they're at their third practice for the day. There are like car lights on the field. And it seems like Gary Bertier and now I'm blanking on Julius, are going to get in a fight. And they start punching each other's shoulder pads like a fight's about to erupt here. And then they all of a sudden they start doing the left side, strong side. Everything pivoted at that point. No more tension on the football team. These guys get along. That was the moment of peripety. You expected a fight. You got this moment of unity. The climax of Esther is chapter 8. Narrative tension comes into focus. She goes into the king, pleads for her people. Everything shifted, though, the night the king couldn't sleep. Take a look at this little chart. This is how the book of Esther is set up. From the start of the book there on the left to the end of the book on the right, Ahasuerus throws a couple of feasts. Haman gets offended by Mordecai and issues a decree in the king's name. Esther makes her first appearance before the king. Esther throws her first dinner. Mordecai is in mourning the whole time because his people are going to be killed. Zeresh, Haman's wife, says, why don't you kill Mordecai? Here's how you can do it. Build a gallows. Then the king can't sleep. Now it just all undoes itself. Now instead of Zeresh offering a plan to kill Mordecai, she gives a prediction about Haman. Mordecai is no longer mourning. He's being honored. Esther gives a second dinner pleads for the Jewish people. Mordecai gives a decree that the Jews can defend themselves as opposed to Haman's decree that the Jews be killed. And then it ends with the Israelites throwing two feasts in celebration of the fact that they've been delivered. The high point is Esther's second dinner. The pivot point is when the king can't sleep. And who is in charge? It's not coincidence that the king can't sleep that he has that book read, that he hears about Mordecai, that he wants help making a decision, and Haman just happens to be out there in the court. That's a sovereign God working through providence to achieve his purposes. Who drives it? God does. At Esther's most pivotal moment, God is the primary agent at work. It's not Esther, not Mordecai, not Ahasuerus, not Haman. His name's never mentioned in the book, but he's the one acting. In fact, if you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, it renders Esther 6-1 this way. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. God is in charge. And so then as the story begins to undo itself, what's the first thing that comes in to relief? Well, the last thing we saw was Haman's rise. The first thing we see on the other side is Haman's ruin. 
and it's his idolatry that undoes him. Why? Because our idols are hoarders. Read with me verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor, honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have him bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you have proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai, the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends that everything that had happened, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. The king asks what should be done for the person that he wants to honor. And this is the only place, Esther 6, verse 7, or verse 6, where we get someone's thoughts in the story. And we get Haman's thoughts. Haman's thoughts are, who else would the king want to honor besides me? I just had dinner with the king and the queen. I recently got a promotion. Obviously, if he wants to honor someone, he wants to honor me. And so his imagination starts to roll. What is it that I would want if I were to be honored? He doesn't want money. He's got enough of that. He doesn't want something for his family. Has no need for that, apparently. He doesn't want land. He could have asked for that for the person that the king honors. He doesn't ask for that. Haman's idol is recognition. He wants to be seen as significant. And so what does he ask for? To be paraded through town looking like the king. Give me the robe. Give me the crown. Get the horse that you've ridden. Put one of your officials out front and have him proclaim that this is what's done for the person that the king wants to honor and it'll be me on the horse. It's like if you were to ask your like four or five-year-old, hey, you can have anything you want for breakfast. What do you want? And they say a waffle with ice cream and sprinkles and like some fruity pebbles on top. And also uh, all the sugary snacks in the cabinet right now, please. And you're like, it's 7 a.m. A little smile, yeah. That's what Haman's doing. This is like his dream. How is it that I would want to be honored? And his idle heart starts to hoard. I would want to look like the king in front of the rest of the kingdom. And the king looks at him and says, yeah, let's do that for Mordecai. He goes and he does it. And we're told that he goes home with his head covered and he's mourning. And that word for mourning is the exact same word that was used back when the edict was given that the Jews were to be killed about how the Jewish people responded. Haman's response to his idol being thwarted is as though life is over for him. He's totally crushed. And so he mourns. He goes home, pulls together his advisors, the same ones that told him to build the gallows. He gets his wife, and look how she responds. 
Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. She isn't Jewish, but she must know something about Yahweh because she realizes that for Haman, it's over. It's like the scene in Acts chapter 5 when uh, a member of the Sanhedrin stands up and says, we shouldn't fight against these Christians because if this is of God, we'll find ourselves fighting against God and not man, and that is a losing battle. That's what Zeresh says to her husband here. And in chapter 7, Haman will be hanged on the monument to his idol's hoarding, the giant gallows in his front yard. His idol has been destroying him, and it will literally destroy him in chapter 7. We've talked theoretically about these idols for two weeks. You can either feed them or starve them. They'll either destroy you or be destroyed. Our idols are hoarders. Let's talk practically for a moment. What are some of the largest idols in suburban American society? Money. Comfort. Career. Relationships. Status. Control. What does it look like for those things to hoard inside of us? What, what do I actually mean by that? Let me start with the idol of money. Just a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were with some friends, some people from our small group. We were down at the Lake of the Ozarks. And one night, we took uh, the boat to this restaurant. And on our way back, we just kind of drove in and out of all these coves along the lake. And we drove into one of them. And on one side of this cove are these beautiful, had to have been million or two million dollar homes. The back are, you know, they're just like solid windows. They drop straight down basically into the water, private docks, big boats. And on the other side of the cove were houses that had to have been like $10 million. And I couldn't help thinking to myself, what do you think the person who sits inside the $2 million house thinks to himself when he looks across the cove at the $10 million house? We got to have more. Look at everything we don't. They've got two boats. We've only got one. Look at all the space they've got. Look at how much stuff they have, how much fun they can have. We need more. And you kind of look around at your million-dollar home and think you're like a peasant or something. That idol starts to hoard. It wants more. What's it look like when the idol of comfort starts to hoard? You've got a life that's fairly well insulated, but the idea of pain or difficulty or trial is so repulsive that when something starts to push into your life that's uncomfortable in any sort of way, your knee-jerk reaction is not to lean into that and what the Lord might have, but instead to try to insulate from that more and more and more and keep those things out from your life. You'll never be able to do that. No amount of insulating yourself from discomfort would ever make it so that the pain of living in a broken world doesn't press in. But that idol of comfort makes a false promise. Protect yourself a little bit more. You'll never have to face this. And anytime discomfort arrives, it feels like your life is falling apart because your idol's made a false promise and it cannot deliver, but it will hoard as if it can. What about when the idol of career starts to hoard. There's a promotion available. You start to massage the numbers on the spreadsheet. You risk your integrity in order to position yourself for that promotion, and someone else gets it. 
feels like your very identity has been attacked. And so what will you do? Well, you'll start to risk a little bit more so that next time you do get the promotion. You commit. I'm never getting passed over again. So maybe you start to work really, really, really long hours and sacrifice your family, or maybe you start to fudge things a little bit more on the bottom line to make it look like the revenue is a little bit higher or whatever the case might be, but it will always want more. Here's the reality. The little hoarder in your heart will always see someone with more of the thing that you want, and that will feed its desire. You'll be tempted to walk in sin in order to gain what your idol wants. You might sacrifice obedience in order to fill in what your idol feels like is lacking. You might be tempted like Haman at the end of chapter five to go ahead and build a gallows to the person that threatened to take away what your idol so desperately craved. And the only answer to that is the gospel. That's it. The overflow of grace is the only thing that can set us free from our idols hoarding. And that's because where idols always take, grace always gives. Rather than making an endless lifetime of demands for more, Jesus gave all of himself in order to provide immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Rather than promising satisfaction and only creating more hunger, Jesus, the bread of life, in his own words, is the food that lasts for eternal life. Haman wants to ride on that horse, wear the robe, wear the crown, have someone proclaim his greatness. And that hoarding idol inside of him leads to his ultimate downfall. It will ultimately destroy him. And yet, we can look to Jesus and see someone who had a robe of scarlet draped over his bleeding beaten body, a thorn of crowns twisted and smashed down on his head, who didn't ride on a horse, but instead carried a cross, who didn't have his greatness proclaimed out in front of him, but instead a sign on top of the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. And he did all of that so that we might have something to cherish that can actually deliver the longings in our hearts. Rather than making an idol the king in our heart, we can make the king of kings the thing that we adore, the thing that we worship, the thing that we bow down to, and have all of our soul's deepest longings forever met. Where idols always take, grace always gives. Where idols are like a tyrannical king making promises to us but always craving more from us, Jesus is a good and gracious king, acknowledging that we have nothing to offer him but giving us all of himself anyway. Think with me for just one more, one more moment here. I want to put the two pieces of this message together. The high point of the biblical narrative is the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus hanging on the cross and rising out of the grave. How do we arrive at that moment? Right? The, the climactic high point of Esther is when she goes in to ask the king to save her people. The turning point in Esther, though, was God's activity on a sleepless night. We arrive at the high point of scripture because in the middle of the night, a family wandering on their way to a census stops in Bethlehem where a sleepless night leads to the birth of a savior. Who's in control in that moment? God is. The high point of scripture, Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the grave to save his people. The turning point in scripture, God's activity on a sleepless night when the savior is born.
And because of the birth of that Savior, because of the grace of God in the sending of his Son, we can turn from our idols and find fulfillment in the gospel. We sing a song around here, and it's what we're going to sing in just a moment. The song is King of Kings. The opening words are this. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. Think back to before you were saved by the grace of God. In the darkness, you were waiting, thinking that your idol would provide something for you that would ultimately give you fulfillment, but what you really had was no hope and no light until from heaven, Jesus came running and snatched you up and there was mercy and grace in his eyes and the deepest longings of your soul could be fulfilled. That is grace that always gives. You might be someone who's been walking with Jesus for a long time. Worship team, you guys can come up. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, how does something like this apply? Because, okay, I, don't, I worship Jesus. I don't worship idols. Well, pause, because even after we've been saved by the grace of God, our flesh will still long to worship something else and long for what an idol promises and can give us. And the grace of God is not just that he saved us from our sin, it's also that he can deliver us from those idols. That when our flesh is tempted to worship something different, money, career, comfort, relationships, status, we can turn to the gospel instead and see in Jesus the actual delivering of what that idol promises. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the gracious, good work of the Holy Spirit that illuminates those idols to us and then redirects our hearts and our minds and our souls to the gospel of Jesus Christ where in God's grace, we find the answer to that thing. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope, without light till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever, not to our idol, but to the King of kings. Let's stand up and sing together.